0: Jonathan's about to steal my Bible over here. Jeez Louise, this guy. Classless move. I brought this stool up because this weekend has been a little rough for me. Had a little food poisoning this weekend, and uh, so I'm still in recovery. We'll see how the legs hold up, but it's all right, you know? We'll get through this. But honestly, I was um, just excited. I I love James, and... um, I want to take every opportunity to to spend time in this book with you guys. And uh, yeah, so here I go. Um, I was thinking about it this week. Um, (laughs) If you have managed to avoid feeling uncomfortable so far in this series, in chapter 5, James is trying to make sure he gets to everybody before this thing is finished, okay? He's like an equal opportunity offender, He's trying to offend as many people as possible with the time that he has been given, right? And in our passage today, he comes back to one of his favorite themes. Maybe you've noticed this. Money is something James spends a lot of time talking about. And there's this moment in our passage where it's like, listen up, you trust fund babies, you yuppie scum, right? It's just like, listen up, he says, wail and cry, weep and moan. Because of the truly awful things that are coming for you. Yes, James is, like I say, a real charmer, okay? And if you remember anything about the church in Jerusalem, this all kind of makes sense. Uh, At the time, uh, if you have ever read 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians, Paul talks at length Um, with the believers there about taking up a donation, an offering for the the church in Jerusalem that is suffering with poverty. There are so many there who are living in abject poverty and uh, all kinds of persecution. They're going through something really painful. And Paul is saying we need to, to help. We need to do something for them, right? James knows this is all going around. And I think when you hear the way James is talking, you might think to yourself like, I think I know why. I think I get why there's this poverty situation in the church, and it's because James has made all of the rich people uncomfortable enough that they're not around anymore. James has run off all of the money. Like, they're all gone now. That's why they're so poor, right? That's what it feels a little bit like, because James is heavy-handed in this passage. But that's, that's not the point. That's not what's happening here. James is, is a man who is deeply convicted about the way we understand, the way we use and, and, and see Money as believers. And that's why if you read the book of James, you'll find James talk about it in chapter 2, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5 where we are today. James is a lot like his, his brother Jesus. He talks about money a lot. Maybe you don't know that about Jesus. Jesus talks a lot about money on average. If you're reading one of the Gospels, one of every 10 verses you read will be about money or possessions. That's more than Jesus talks about sexuality. That's more than Jesus talks about prayer. It's more than he talks about hell. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about money, and and James has inherited this. He has deep convictions about it. Apparently, it's important. But here's the thing. Anytime we come to a conversation on the wealthy, we always have this question in our minds, like, like how are we defining rich? What does James mean by rich? I mean, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, like all of these questions come to our minds, right? And sometimes we're trying to figure out who's rich and who's not rich because we quietly are kind of like, Maybe one day I could be, right? There are those people that are kind of like, I mean, maybe if I work hard enough and if I do things the right way, I might fall into that category. I might be considered wealthy. And then there's other times where we're looking at this and we're trying to define rich in such a way that I'm not a part of that group, like in this moment. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not me, right? And Forbes, right, asked the question every single year. Who is considered rich? What does wealth look like? Who is rich and who is richest, Right, who are the richest people? Our culture is obsessed with this idea. And I think that the more we ask these questions, the more we realize there is like this infinitely wider wealth disparity between the rich and the poor in our day than there was in James's day. There was a pretty significant distance in Jerusalem and in the empire of Rome between the poor and the rich, but nothing, not even close to what we see in the world today. And as we we ask these questions, a lot of times we kind of insulate ourselves from all of this, from the force of what James is saying, by looking at everything and saying, well, (laughs) I am definitely not rich. And listen, if you come to Mosaic, I can almost guarantee you are correct. You are not rich. None of you are that wealthy. That's not an insult. It's an observation from many years in this church. Apparently, we have have run off all the wealthy people too. I don't know. (laughs) But the, the problem is, right, when we say, I am not rich, what we're insinuating, right, our implication is, the problem is, when I say, I am not rich, I'm saying, and thereby, this does not apply to me. What James has to say, I can kind of pull the teeth out of it. It doesn't apply to me. That's not me. That's not how I'm living my life. I don't make a lot of money. I don't spend it foolishly. I feel like I I make an attempt at being generous. This doesn't apply to me. But James doesn't just see rich as a matter of, like, your net worth. James doesn't see rich as as a matter of the size of your house. James is not talking about it as if there's some threshold that we have to qualify. That's how we generally talk about it, these markers. Now, obviously, James is certainly talking to people who have those markers, right? Those things are certainly markers, measures of wealth and especially as we start to think on like a global scale there are so many who would fall into this this category of of rich right but then we begin to make all these poor and kind of unfair comparisons because when you start thinking about the cost of living in other countries standards of living all of this that all kind of falls apart and james isn't even trying to do that james is not interested in all of these measures that we would use to either insulate ourselves from this or to like throw ourselves into that category james is not interested in all of that Sure, those are all markers of wealth, and he's definitely speaking to people who fall into that category, who've got a lot of money. But he's not just speaking to those people. For James, rich isn't just a a measure. It's not just a marker. Rich is a mindset. Rich is, is this mindset. Rich is this worldview. It's like a belief system and... A lot of modern Americans ascribe to it. Maybe the majority of us ascribe to it, right? If I have more money, if I have more things, I'll be happy. If I have more money, I'll have more security in the future. And that's hard to argue against, we say, right? And every day of our lives, I mean, honestly, like we are bombarded with these stories, these posts, these articles written about the wealthy over and over again. We're invited via, you know, the news cycle, via social media. We're invited into these people's lives to live a fantasy in which we kind of imagine and hope for the day that maybe our lives could be like that. Maybe we could have this easier, happier life. We're brought into the fantasy over and over again. And this is one of those things, like, over the years I've come to realize, like, we don't recognize it very much, but, like, social media is, in that sense... The new cycle as, as it exists in our world, like to some degree, it's pornographic in nature. Not in the traditional sense, but pornographic in the sense that it invites us to live a fantasy. You can live as, as this sort of uh, vicarious observer. You can sit and and watch someone else's life and fantasize about what it would be like if it was yours. Over and over again, we're invited to fantasize about what money could do for us, how our lives could be better if we had more of it, or if we'd approach things differently, if we had a different job, or we'd made different decisions over and over again. And that means you can be one of these people that's saying, Listen, that's not me. You can make $30,000, $40,000 a year. And James is saying, You can still have the mindset, you can still be living the fantasy. You can still be clinging onto this as your only hope. Nobody can easily escape from what James is saying. And James wants to offer us an alternative to this mindset. James is not saying it's bad to have money. There are plenty of wealthy people in the early church who do incredible things for the church. James is not trying to push those people away. James is trying to say this mindset is poisonous and he's giving us an alternative Instead of us living in the fantasy of of going from rags to riches, he wants to invite us into the reality that Christ has left riches for rags. This is our mindset. This is the gospel. This is the nature of the kingdom. This is our worldview. This is our mindset toward everything that we have. But, but what's so surprising is James's approach. like The way James frames these ideas, this different mindset toward money, he frames it all around this phrase, the last days. You have hoarded wealth, he says, in the last days. Like three different times he brings it up. In those 11 verses that Jonathan read, he says, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Then he goes on, be patient then until the Lord's Coming, right? And he goes further. The Lord's coming is near. This is the basis for everything he's saying, for this new mindset, this new perspective. James sees that much of the problem with with, with our obsession with money is that we have a misunderstanding of the coming of the kingdom. This is why we're so deluded about money. We have misunderstood the the coming of the kingdom. Here are, are these early believers suffering, in James' church. And there were rich people in Jerusalem who used every opportunity they could to abuse these people. The early church, they were like the dregs of their society. And the rich very often manipulated them. And James is speaking directly to those kinds of people, right? He wants to, to condemn that kind of behavior. Those who want to abuse and grow wealthier and more powerful as they go. James condemns that But he's also trying to do something else. He's also trying to speak to those of us in the church who don't fall into that category, but who might, after a while, after seeing that over and over again, we might begin to yearn for the same wealth, the same power. We might begin to place our value in our net worth, assuming that more will ease my suffering. More will bandage my wounds. I need to bandage this terrible thing that I'm living through with more And it all makes so much sense what James is doing, right? James is not arguing that money doesn't matter. You shouldn't be concerned about it. Don't worry about your financial responsibilities or or liabilities. None of that's going to matter. Jesus is coming back. That's happened in the church. People have taught those kinds of things. That's not what James is saying. James is saying our perspective of the future changes what we believe about money. Our perspective of the kingdom, of the coming of Christ, it changes how we think about money and its value in my life. Like, think about it. practically. If I believe, which I think many people do in the church, like many of us wrestle with this, if I believe that Christ's coming is unlikely, if it feels distant and, and less and less true, then what does that mean Inevitably. It means I'm left to my own devices. It means I have to seek money, right? I've got to get what I can to kind of guarantee for myself some kind of prosperous future because I have no hope in the kingdom. That's like a metaphor, but it's, it's, it's not real. I can't count on the kingdom as my hope. So I've just got to get what I can while I can. But if we believe... The reality of the kingdom, if we believe that Christ is coming, that the promise is near to being fulfilled, whatever that means, right, then there's this inherent optimism, this inherent hope in the way that that I live my life. Money for me becomes just a means to an end. It is not the end that I am seeking. No, it is a means to an end, namely to reveal that coming kingdom. Money has value only for that to affirm that, to reveal that. James is is trying to help you see the irony in this mindset. The mindset of the rich is ironic. That Christ's coming is so near, James is saying, that these are the last days of the kingdoms of this world that you've known. And yet, we are carrying the perspective of those worldly kingdoms as we walk toward the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. How ironic that we're still hoping over and over again to be able to use the currency of this world in the economy of the kingdom. It can't work. James says the joke is on you, my friend. To say that you believe this kingdom is coming and to be trying to carry a different currency into it, it just won't work. You look like a fool, James says. Your wealth is rotting. Your money, it's corroding. Your silver and your gold are rusting. And that's not a thing. I don't know about you guys. That's not a thing we're very familiar with at this point. For James, that's a very literal thing. Your money can be corroded. It can waste away. For us, like, that's not really common. Like, we don't use coinage very much. And that's certainly not where the, the majority of our wealth might be. Our money is tied up you know, on some computer server somewhere. It can all be fixed when something goes wrong. But in James' day, like, this is a real issue. If your money is just stashed away sitting somewhere, it can literally corrode. It can lose its value. It can become worthless. And James says, what kind of fool are you? That you're holding on to this thing that is just corroding. It's rusting. It's ruining. Like, I mean, for us, obviously, you can light a dollar on fire, right? It can be burned up. Honestly, all of that can be fixed. Again, it's, it's all on some server somewhere, like especially in light of all of these different conversations on cryptocurrency and all of this. We just don't see money this way. But James says it can all lose its value. It can all become useless. Paul uses interesting language in, uh, in 1 Corinthians especially. He uses the language of, of perishability. There's the perishable and there's the imperishable. In 1 Corinthians 9:25 he makes this statement. He says the world competes for a crown that is perishable, but we do it for a crown that is imperishable. The world competes for a corrupted crown, one that is fading that is passing away, but we are competing for one that is imperishable and eternal, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And James is taking this and he's using it to make his argument. James asks, why then are you building your life around a perishable reward, right? when what awaits you is an imperishable and an eternal one, right? James says it doesn't make as much sense as you think it does. It makes so much sense, like when you're constantly bombarded by all of this news, all of these stories, this mindset over and over again. It makes so much sense, and James is trying to help you see it doesn't make that much sense if you actually believe this. And what James proposes is kind of surprising his alternative is patience like (laughs) i was kind of like expecting you know james would be like be generous right be cheerful givers the language of, of paul maybe like learn selfless sacrifice put others before yourself and james doesn't do that he goes even deeper he says this is really about your impatience you're not patient He wants to dig a bit deeper. The reason behind my insatiable need for more, for more money, to have more stuff, to be more impressive, to be more successful, more powerful, whatever it is, James says, it's all my impatience. This need of mine for instant gratification, right? To have something I can put my hands on, right? That just feels better. Like all of this pie-in-the-sky talk, it's nice on Sunday, but like practically I need something I can lay my hands on. And it is easier for me to grasp for these seen treasures than for me to cling to the hope of the unseen kingdom. It's easy for me to try to get my hands on something, something tangible, But James is saying, if you believe that something better is coming than you could ever work for, something better is coming than you could ever lay your hands on, right? If you're patiently waiting on a steadfast God, then it frees you in a way that money can't. It frees you to be generous because you don't have to hold on to these things so tightly because you believe something better is coming, right? It's easy to sacrifice your desires for the sake of others, to sacrifice what you have for these needs you see around you when you recognize something better is coming. And I want to to hold on to that. I want to reveal that in this decision that I'm making. I want to approach this differently. And James says, be patient. This is the problem. You've got to learn to be patient with God as he waits, but also with others. He says, don't grumble with one another. Like, that's the thing. Like, division is very easily sown in a moment when you're suffering. It's very easy for you to decide it's these people's fault. If I hadn't made this decision, if these people hadn't brought me into this life, if they hadn't told me that it was going to be okay, right? He says, don't grumble with one another. Be patient. Trust that something is, is coming that's so far, so much better than anything you're ever gonna be able to work for. doesn't mean those things don't matter. It means you have to see them differently. And one of the the best illustrations of what James is talking about here is in uh, in John 12. It's this very familiar scene. Uh, In John 12, this is Jesus's last trip to Jerusalem, okay? Jesus is going to Jerusalem, as he's been saying all along, ultimately to die. This is his last trip. He's going there for the Passover. And while he's on the way, he and his disciples, they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem in this little village called Bethany where some of his best friends are. If you remember just like a a chapter earlier, we've heard the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, right? So Mary and Martha and Lazarus all live there in Bethany and Jesus is visiting them. And there's this moment where Jesus is in the room in their house and and Mary walks into the room and she's, she's carrying this jar. Incredibly expensive vase filled with perfume. And she does like a lot of people would do. Uh, She breaks open the jar, but instead of of just like using a little bit, she begins to pour it all over Jesus' feet, all over his head. It's just running down his body. And and everybody in the room is disturbed by what she's doing. Because what, what she has brought into this room is tremendously expensive. Like, it's gratuitously wasteful what this woman is doing. It's foolish, right? It doesn't make sense. It's financially reckless to the movement of the kingdom, right? Here we are. We're already poor enough, and this woman, does she not recognize our limits? At least that's what Judas thinks. That's what some of the other disciples think. And I think if we're being real, that's probably what a lot of us would think. Judas is being practical, right? They object to what she has done, right? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the proceeds, the money given to the poor, right? Why didn't it contribute to the thing we've been doing all along? But Matthew says Jesus shuts them all down. He immediately says, why are you bothering this woman? Why are you so bothered by her generosity, right? She's done a beautiful thing to me, he says, and he goes on, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. As profound as these miraculous things Jesus does, as profound as the resurrection is, this thing will be told. This beautiful thing that she did that seems so reckless. So here are two different approaches to wealth Judas or Mary. Judas, honestly, he just makes sense to me. Like for all of, it's easy to throw Judas under the bus, I mean, because we know the rest of the story. We know that Judas will betray Jesus, right? And it's easy for me to just say, well, Judas is a terrible person. No, he's not. Judas is so much like me. He's so, like he, he's thinking so practically. He's going, what about the poor? What about what we could do with this? But John, being himself, John wants to fill us in. John is like giving us, you know, the, the real goss, right? Whatever we want to call it. John says, Judas also liked to, uh, to help himself to the money bag every once in a while. Judas was the money guy, he handled the money, he was the treasurer of the disciples. And Judas liked to take advantage every once in a while. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, it seems like it's true. It seems scandalous, but it all makes sense. Because if you, you read the rest of the Gospels, you find that this event, this thing that happens, what Mary just did is like the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. This is the thing that took it one step too far. This is the, the moment where Judas realizes he's got to take what he can get from this whole thing. Judas realizes this mission is going nowhere. It's doomed. It's doomed. And it's all because a woman did something like this. That's the thing that finally made him say, yeah, I guess I am going to do this. I am going to to betray Jesus. He's seen enough to know. It's it's just not not going to go anywhere. Jesus isn't trying to grow this movement. Jesus isn't trying to bring more people in. Jesus seems to have a death wish. He's always bringing it up over and over again. And Judas isn't patient enough to wait for what's coming after. Judas isn't patient enough to wait for the hope of resurrection. Money becomes the end that Judas is seeking. He or she has wasted money, and he says, you know what? I know a better way. we got to start thinking about the poor. we got to start thinking about what money could do for us. And the kingdom for, for Judas became a matter of dollars and cents. And let's be honest, for many of us, I had a friend one time who asked me, it startled me. Kyle, what do you think determines the success of a church? Is it attendance or is it money? And I'm just like, this is a dude I was baptized with, and I love him. but I'm like, dude, you are so misguided. But he's just saying what so many people believe, right? The kingdom for many people is just a matter of dollars and cents. If we've got more, then we can do more. And it's, it's a modern mindset. We've lost hold of it. And that is the mindset of Judas, Success, crowds, notoriety, power, visibility in the community, and money is key to all of that. Judas is going to get what he can while he can. right? This is, this is the American dream. This is self-reliance, man. This is the sort of stuff that we can get on board with. But Mary, Mary on the other hand, Just like Judas, she's not exactly wealthy. Here's the thing you need to keep in mind. Neither Judas nor Mary are people who fall into the broader category of rich. Neither of them would have called themselves wealthy. Neither would anybody else. And Mary is no wealthy benefactor. She doesn't dabble in philanthropy. She doesn't have much to offer, right? But she isn't stupid. She's not unaware of how costly this decision she made was. Mary just knows something better is coming. And Mary's question is like what's a little perfume wasted in an act of worship? What's a little money thrown at the feet of Jesus? I'm okay with that. She knows something better is coming. She knows that she could hoard this money, that she could she could wait for the right opportunity, the perfect opportunity, something incredible might come along an opportunity to bless someone. And instead, she's like, I'm just going to do the beautiful thing I see right in front of me. I have a beautiful opportunity, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Jesus says she's done something beautiful. So in this moment, you're saying Judas or Mary. I can either cling to this money, hoard it as my own, as my only hope. I've got I've to have some security. Or... I can do something far more beautiful with every opportunity I'm given because something more beautiful is coming. This is is what James wants us to see. You can hoard your money. You can cling to it. You can spend your life built around, make all your decisions about this. And in the church, we can do the same thing. We can build what we're trying to do. It can all be about bringing in more. And we can lose hold of this, that there's something far more beautiful we could be doing with what we have. And I think James is asking, like, what do you really want? What do you actually want? What do you actually believe? This is why we talk about giving so much. It's not just about keeping the lights on. We say that all the time. Like, giving is important. How we understand our money, how we think about these things, learning generosity together is about staving off, keeping this from taking root among us. Being a people who know there's something far more beautiful we could do with what God is giving us than hoarding it, stashing it away for what we think might be a better opportunity somewhere along the way. As generous, as practical as this can sound sometimes. And as we come to the table this morning, as as the band comes, as we take of the bread, as we, we drink of the cup, there's this reminder that Jesus leveraged his royal status. In some sense, like Jesus mortgaged heaven so that I could experience the kingdom. Like that's our model. That's what Jesus has done, and it has to become my model. By his poverty, I have become rich, but rich doesn't mean what it used to. Rich doesn't mean for me what it means for Forbes. Like we are a rich people, but we approach it differently. Are we Judas or are we Mary? Are we enticed by the practicality, the utility of what we could do with our money? Or are we drawn into the beauty of the kingdom? Are we trying to use this currency of this world in the economy of the kingdom? Has the kingdom just become a matter of dollars and cents? And James says, God forbid, be patient. Something better is coming than whatever you can do. Whatever it is you accomplish, whatever legacy you have in mind for yourself, something better is coming. There's a new model for rich. There's a new mindset, a new worldview, a new perspective. And as we enter into the kingdom, James says you have to embrace it. Leave behind this other mindset. Cling to this as your only hope. Be patient with God, with one another. Don't let your impatience entice you into this other mindset. Believe in this is near. Believe that these days are closer and closer to Jesus fulfilling what he said he's going to do. And that's what you need to hold on to. Put all of your eggs in that basket, James says. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for, for James's blunt tone. I thank you for his unwillingness to say things Nice. We so often want to say things in the least offensive way possible, God, but I I thank you that James has chosen to say these things in in potent ways, sometimes painful ways. And I pray that we could see that he speaks that way, not out of of anger, not with some agenda, but because he, he needs us to hear it, because he knows there's something better, there's something more beautiful we could be giving our lives to. Show us this new mindset, Lord. I pray that you would form in us a deep patience and hope for that day that is coming. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these moments, they're going to play, and we invite you guys to come tear off a piece of bread, take a cup, and then you can move back toward your seats, and then uh, I'll come back up and we'll lead through this together.